morning and welcome to Esther chapter 7 and 8. Like I said, if you were in class with us, we would be singing Jesus Saves and Living for Jesus. So when this is over with, y'all look up the lyrics and read them and I think you would be blessed. Let's open in prayer. Father, we just thank you uh, for this wonderful, beautiful day. We just ask that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would give us ears to hear your truth, and that we would apply your truth to our lives so that we would be changed Lord, open our eyes that we may see wonderful truths in your word, O oh Lord. And what we know not, teach us, and what we have not, give us, and what we are not, make us. For Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Billy Graham says, We have heard the modern expression, don't fight it. It's bigger than both of us. Those who submit to the will of God do not fight back at life. They learn the secret of surrender, of yielding to God then he fights for us. And Greg Laurie writes, The people God uses. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. 1 Corinthians 1.27 When we think of Elijah, we generally think of powerful miracles. No doubt he was one of the greatest miracle worker prophets of all. He raised the dead, he stopped the rain, he called fire down from heaven. I think he'd been a great guy to have at a barbecue. The Bible tells us that Elijah was a Tishabite from Tishabe in Gilead. That means very little to us, but it's important for us to know that Gilead was east of the Jordan River. The people who lived there were rough-hewn, tanned from the sun, and tough. He would have dressed in animal skins. We know Elijah as a man who was bold and courageous. He was fearless. When we hear a story like Elijah's, we might ask, what does this have to do with me? Yet the Bible tells us in the book of James that Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. The New Living Translation says Elijah was human as we are. Sometimes Elijah seems like he was superhuman, but he wasn't. In fact, he had moments of great fear and depression. At one point, he was so despondent that he wanted just to give up his life and die. Have you ever felt that way? Here's the good news. God can use flawed people. Praise the Lord. God can use imperfect people. Praise the Lord again. God can use people who have weaknesses. In fact, it seems as though God goes out of the way to find peoples like that. Why? Because if God only used the super talented, the beautiful, the handsome, we would say, there's no hope for us. But when God uses the person who is pretty much like we are, we know there's hope for us. God has chosen the foolish things of the world, the Bible says, to put to shame the wise. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, and I'm certain Esther would amen this as well, we do not want you to become uninformed brothers about the hardships we are suffering in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life, even indeed in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. As you help us by your prayers, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Have you ever 
experienced the same sort of pressure or at the very least circumstances that were far beyond our ability to endure. In all actuality, everything is far beyond our ability to endure, amen? Apart from the Holy Spirit. I know I have, and I'm still in the midst of trying times. Perhaps, as Paul said, these things are happening for me to rely on God and his strength and his perfect and pleasing will, rather than my own. Hello, I seem to be such a slow learner. I know for certain anything I have placed my hopes on apart from Christ and his power will be found wanting in the end. Remember, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply, Hudson Taylor writes. And Alistair Begg adds, I think it fair to think of there being seasons in our souls. There are times when we find ourselves enjoying a spiritual summer. From sunrise to sunset, we sense that we are living under God's smile and pleasure. And we wish that these days may never end. These times may not prove to be the most beneficial to our spiritual welfare, however. One of the Puritan writers writes commented on how the believers may fall asleep in the sunshine, but not in the storm. We're persistent in prayer when we're in the storms, amen? You will never need more than God can supply, Packer writes. And Thomas Brooks, another Puritan writer, writes, God hath in himself all power to defend you, all wisdom to direct you, all mercy to pardon you, all grace to enrich you, all righteousness to clothe you, all goodness to supply you, and all happiness to crown you. Find your joy in him. God has promised to supply all our needs, not just some of them, but all our needs. What we do not have now, we don't need now, Elizabeth Elliot says. At the beginning of chapter 7, after much fasting and praying, which is the appropriate manner before tackling something God's size, or any size, Esther is ready to follow through with God's plan. It was a go, so to speak. Eventually, we all must act. Pretty soon, we can plan all we want to, but then you just got to get up and do it. To take the, that first step of obedient faith, which will be beginning of, the beginning of many, it is most often one obedient step of faith at a time, which eventually equates to a life well lived. We do not see the end from the beginning as our Father does. He desires for us to trust Him in all things, knowing that He always loves us, He always has our best interests at heart. And he always bestows the power and grace sufficient to meet the need to do what his will desires for us to do. And you want to be in his will. You, that's what you want. We are the losers when we miss out. Like Epaphras prayed for the church at Colossae, you want to stand firm in God's will, mature and fully assured. Bonhoeffer's words ring true for Esther as they do for us as well. Silence in the face of evil is evil itself. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Fear is nothing more than false evidence that appears real. Not often, but more. More than, more than often it is. One of our enemy's greatest deceptions is that I am not in control. In truth, I am with you always. Talking, this is from God's point of view. 
let me start over again because this is written, uh, this is a Sherry Rose Shepherd, and this is, she writes from God's point of view. Fear is nothing more than false evidence that appears evil or real. One of our enemy's greatest deceptions is that I, God, am not in control. In truth, I, God, am with you always, as you never have to fear. I am your heavenly Father, and I will prepare the way and protect you wherever I take you. Would you be willing to take a chance and trust me, the God who loves you, to lead you through this life? If you accept my invitation to live without fear and totally surrender to me, you will experience a real-life transformation, which only I can work inside of you. Amen to that. You will find the courage to step out and do something so much bigger and better than you could have ever imagined. Your soul will soar, and your faith will be energized and exercised in the end. You will leave a legacy of faith for all who have watched you live in me. We want to be found faithful. May those who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their way. You know, that's what that, that song, I can't even remember all the, all the different lyrics to that song, but it's, it's a great song. And William Gurnall, in um, The Voices from the Past, again, as a Puritan writer, um, he writes, The Lord is my helper. Saints should consider the power of God is available for them. I mean, that's amazing. They should impress it upon their souls until all their doubts and fears are silenced. We may count this attribute our position and reap the comfort it yields as freely as one may harvest the crop of his own field. God said to Abraham, I am God Almighty. This is your portion. Live upon it. The apostle teaches, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Every believer may boldly say, God will help. Not perhaps he will, but God will help. We may boldly assert it before men and devils because the Almighty said it. And what he has said, he will bring to pass. He means it. Our obedience and comfort become strong or weak according to our faith in this principle. Abraham was strong in faith. And what a heroic faith of obedience he performed in offering up his son. No act of faith so strengthened us for duty as our belief that God's almighty power is engaged for our assistance. Remember this well. You will never lack God's supply when you go in his way. Go in this might of yours, God said to Gideon. Do not I send you, and I'm not sending you, get up and go. It is as if God is saying, can I not, will I not carry you through your work? If I'm sending you, I will do it through you. Away goes Gideon and trust that God does wonders. A soul not persuaded of this is uneven and unstable in the course of obedience. Every threat from man dismays him. He has his eyes behold the power of man, but lacks the spiritual eye to see God at his back. All he can see is the troubles, not the power in, within him. Should such a man as, as, as I run away, said good Nehemiah, O oh God, strengthen my hands. That is to be our prayer. Give us the power, Lord, to do this great work. He would rather die there than dishonor his God with a dishonorable retreat. The Christian's comfort also increases when we trust in God's almighty power. Many fears, like waves, roll over us. He, will, he who sees himself folded in almighty arms 
Oh, how he mounts up before the wind with his sails filled with joy and peace. Let storms arise, this one may sing merrily, with the sharpest thorn at his breast. That's how Paul could write what he did, what he went through. He was still joyful. He knew he was accomplishing God's purposes and bringing God much glory. When we left chapter 6, Haman, vile Haman, had been humiliated by having to honor Mordecai the Jew, albeit his humiliation being unbeknownst to the king. All of this went without the king's knowledge. He had rushed home and grieved to his wife and friends who had no good news for him either, telling him he was surely going to come to ruin. Barely getting his breath, Haman was then whisked off to Esther's second banquet with apparently no idea what was about to take place. His doom was sure. Indeed, if he had known of the connection between Mordecai and Esther, he would have been terrified at the prospect of attending. The climax of our story is about to take place. We find King Xerxes in a good mood at Esther's table and Haman in not so good a mood. Go figure. On the second day of the banquet, while they were eating and drinking, God gave Esther her opportunity and she proves herself faithful. And this was a scary thing. This was no light matter of just asking somebody to do something. She could have been killed. The king asked her what her request was again, promising that he would grant it to her, up to half his kingdom. Getting right to the point, Esther requests from the king for the life of herself and for her people, who have been sold into extinction through destruction, slaughter, and annihilation, referring to the words of the decree. This had to have had a startling effect on Xerxes for his wife to have had such a petition. In great humility, I love her in humility. If this, if this had been just to sell us as slaves, I wouldn't have even bothered you, but therefore, there, this is for our destruction. She further said that she would not have bothered him, like I said, and they merely been sold as slaves rather than slaughter. She would have been kept silent because that would have not been not enough to justify disturbing him. But as it stood, it was not their liberty at stake, rather their lives, which were sold to gratify the pride and revenge of one evil man. And can you imagine what Haman's doing while he's listening to all of this, listening to her talk? It was now clear to Xerxes that Esther's nationality was Jewish. Certainly, Esther must have been apprehensive after spilling the beans, so to speak, not knowing if the king would grant her request. I mean, he or fly off the handle into a rage had he done with Vashti. And he, he's so um, up and down, seemingly with no pregnant pause, yet with such amazement at the audacity of the action of the one she's referring to, Xerxes um, asked Esther, who was this man? who has dared to do such a thing. Xerxes seems to be shocked at the wickedness that he himself is a guilty party to, or remember that he had consented to that bloody edict against the Jews himself. Esther plainly charges Haman with the deed before his very face. I love that. It was this vile Haman who plotted their murder. I love that she is not going behind closed doors, rather like King David with Goliath, she goes face to face with her adversary. Sometimes we just have to do that. Undoubtedly, a look of terror was on Haman's face as he was exposed before the most powerful man on the face of the earth at the time. Bullies, more often than not, when confronted with the evil, are without courage. They flee like roaches. Indeed, if all possible, they are like roaches that scatter when the lights go on. 
The queen was his prosecutor, the king his judge, and his own conscience bearing witness against him. Truth will stand when all else fails. Now the king is filled with rage. Interestingly, rage is the exact same word used to describe Haman's feelings in chapter 5 against Mordecai not bowing down to him. What goes around comes around. When it says, Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits, and when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. The word actually means to be in heat, anger, wrath, rage, indignation, poison, and venom. In his anger, Xerxes gets up, goes outside to his palace garden, leaving company and wine behind. Scripture does not say why. Perhaps he was seeking to get his anger under control or thinking of a way to execute Haman or seeking to think through a way to spare Esther and her nation. More than likely, it was to commerce himself and to consider what needed to be done. Certainly, he could have been blaming himself over such a foolish and capricious doom a guiltless nation was to just to go through to destruction and his own queen among them on a wicked, self-seeking man's suggestion without even examining any truths of the allegations. When will he learn to quit his being so rash? Realizing that the king had already determined his fate, Haman stays behind and seeks to become a humble petitioner before the queen to spare his life. This was indeed an unusual phenomenon as Haman was so full of arrogance and pride. How insignificant Haman now looks when he falls at Esther's feet to beg for his life. And how great Esther now appears who had previously been grieving and doomed and fasting. Nothing stays the same, does it, ladies? Their roles changed in a matter of mere moments. When God's in there, this is what happens. You see this over and over in Scripture. The day is coming when those who hate and persecute God's chosen ones would, would gladly be indebted to them. I am reminded of Joseph, who went from the prison to the second highest command in all of Egypt in a single day. God can do anything we find in Genesis. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it's said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph said to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, In my dream I was standing on the bank of the Nile. When the river there came up, seven cows, fat and sleek, and they were gazing among the reeds. After them, seven other cows came up, scrawny and very ugly and lean. I had never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean, ugly cows ate up the fat seven cows that came first. But then, after they ate up, they ate them up, no one could tell that they had done so. They looked just as ugly as before. Then I woke up. In my, in my dreams, I also saw seven heads of grain, full and good, growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads sprouted, withered and thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads. I told this to the magicians, but none of them could explain it to me. And then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh that he, what he is about to do. 
because he makes known the end from the beginning, right? The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years, and the seven ugly, worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he must do about this. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance of Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come in Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and all of his officials. So Pharaoh asked him, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one discerning and as wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. That's in Genesis 41, 15 through 40. God's way and God's timing. Always. Always. This is what we should all want as believers in Jesus, even though it can oftentimes seem so tediously slow. God is working in the wait. He is always working in the wait. We, feel, we can feel forgotten, as I'm sure Joseph did in prison. It was like 13 years that he was, he was uh, tucked away. Yet we must remember that his ways and timing are always so perfect nevertheless. I'm reminded of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet's words and Lamentations, when he was forlorn over the circumstances of his people. In Lamentations 3, 17 through 26, I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone and all I have hope for from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, my, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet, this is a pivotal point, yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. He brings it back to mind. He was looking upon his problems, and then he looks up. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. Be satisfied with your portion from the Lord. He is the filler of our cups. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Next, we see Xerxes entering back into the scene, only to discover Haman falling on the couch of which Esther was reclining, becoming even more exasperated and furious with him. Persians and later Greeks, Romans, and Jews reclined on couches when they ate. 
How very Cleopatra-like. At just that moment, another so-called happenstance in Esther, rather than stating it was the absolute sovereignty of God, the king returns and accuses Haman of assaulting the queen. However, Haman was not assaulting her, but he was merely falling on her couch for mercy, begging for mercy. It is also unlikely that Haman and Esther were alone in the banquet hall. No doubt there had to be people there who were serving the meal, as well as guards who would also have been present. The word they in Esther 7-8 suggests that several people were on the scene. As soon as the words leave Xerxes' mouth against Haman, the guards around him were ready to be the instruments of the king's wrath. Those in the king's court who lauded Haman when he was rising sun, when he was a rising sun, set themselves as much against him now that he was a falling star. His friends being as fickle as he. As soon as the king spoke an angry word, they covered Haman's face as a condemned man marked for execution. Those who were hanged commonly had their faces covered. Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, had recently been to Haman's home to get him to bring him to the banquet. He informed the king about the gallows that Haman had built previously for Mordecai the Jew. It's quite possible that Haman was hated by many people in that city of Susa, especially in the government circles, given his prideful heart and his prideful actions. The king swiftly gave orders that Haman should be hanged on his own gallows, and it was promptly carried out. The tables had now turned, but the Jews were still left with a major problem. The king's edict to eradicate them was still in effect, and by law could not be revoked. Per a Persian decree, there would still be a great slaughter of many innocent people, all because of the wicked actions of a now dead man. We will soon discover that while God had sovereignly worked in various circumstances so that the Jews could be delivered, it was now their turn to take part. Everybody has a part. Remember, they were, just, they were not just given the promised land. They had to take it through battle, led by the Lord through his power. But they participated. They themselves did. These Jews would have to fight as well through his achieving power to retain what was rightfully theirs. They would have to take an active part in their own deliverance. God still does this. We are not just to sit blithely around waiting for him to act, expecting him to plow our fields and plant the seeds, so to speak. The Bible never, ever teaches that. We all have a job to do, as well as it may be scary, as well, it may be scary like Esther's, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and a myriad of others in Scripture. I mean, a lot of things he's told these people to do are scary things. Oftentimes, we need great faith to accomplish great tasks. Spurgeon's uh, Morning and Evening, he writes, Have faith in God in Mark eleven twenty two. Faith is the foot of the soul by which it can march along the road of the commandments. Love can make the feet move swiftly, but faith is the foot which carries the soul. Faith is the oil enabling the wheels of holy devotion and of earnest piety to move well. And without faith, the wheels are taken from the chariot and we drag heavily. 
With faith I can do all things. Without faith I shall neither have the inclination nor the power to do anything in the service of God. If you want to find those who serve God the best, you, will, you must look for people who have the most faith. Little faith will save a person, but little faith can't do great things for God. Poor little faith could have fought, could not have fought Apollyon. It needed Christian to do that. He's referring to Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress. Poor little faith could not have slain great despair. It requires great heart's arm to knock that monster down. Little faith will go to heaven most certainly, but it often has to hide itself in a nutshell, and it frequently loses all but its jewels. Little Faith says, It's a rough road beset with sharp thorns and full of dangers. I am afraid to go, but great faith remembers the promise. Your shoes shall be iron and brass. As your days, so shall your strength be. And so she boldly ventures. Little Faith stands hopeless, mingling her tears with the flood. But great faith sings, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And she fords the stream at once. Would you be comfortable and happy? Would you enjoy your faith? Would you have the religion of cheerfulness and not that of gloom? Then have faith in God. If you love darkness and are satisfied to dwell in gloom and misery, then be content with little faith. But if you love the sunshine and would sing songs of rejoicing, covet earnestly this best gift, great faith. It's called uh, the law of the harvest. I I love what the proverb says. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? (laughs) When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty comes upon you like a bandit and scarcity like an armed man. Paul also tells us, I put this in human terms, because you're weak in your natural selves. We are weak in our natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, which leads to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap? at that time from the things you are now ashamed of. These things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. All sin carries with it a death sentence. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6, 19-23. Galatians, he says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, if we, if, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. Chapter 8 begins with King Xerxes queen, giving Queen Esther Haman's property. Apparently, Haman was considered a criminal, for his property was confiscated as well as, king, as the king's signet ring. 
Ironically, not only was Haman's plot of revenge, it was also to raise a large estate for himself through all the plunder he would have confiscated from the Jewish property. And now his property was being confiscated and given to a Jewish, Esther. So like God, he turned the, he can turn the things on a dime. Mordecai was brought into the presence of the king for Esther had told him of, her, of their relation. Xerxes now gives the king to Mordecai. What a turn of events. The table's continuing to turn against Haman, even after his death. All the trust and all the power Xerxes had had for Haman was now transferred to Mordecai, Haman's mortal enemy. And Xerxes now makes the, this trusty, humble man his confidant. And Mordecai was indeed a humble servant of God. Esther appoints Mordecai over the management of Haman's estate as well. Mordecai's prior procession or mourning through the city streets was suddenly turned into a blaze of honor. What a difference there was between Haman and Mordecai. Haman being boastful, prideful, egocentrical, evil, replaced by Mordecai who was humble, modest, and who had a genuine concern for his people. Remember, Esther had been queen for four years now. Yet the king remained ignorant of their relation. He was so far from being ambitious at court that he concealed his relations to Queen Esther. I am reminded of Peter's words, All of you, not just some, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Moody writes, a holy life will produce the deepest impression. Lighthouses blow no horns. They only shine. We are the light of the world. A city on the hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under its bowl. No, they put it on the sand and it gives light to everybody in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven, Jesus writes in Matthew. When God lifts you up, he lifts you up indeed. It's so much better. It's so much better. Since the edict to exterminate the Jews was still in effect, something had to be done and had to be done quickly. Again, Esther humbly appears before the king a second time without an invitation and was again encouraged to present her petition by his extending the golden scepter. Interestingly, it appears she had earned the right to be heard. Hmm, I like that. Again, as her first petition was anything but frivolous. Sometimes we do have to earn the right to be heard. Oftentimes. She begged the king to put an end to the evil plan which Haman had put in place against the Jews. She presents it with so much emotion, pleading and falling at his feet, weeping, every tear as precious as any of the pearls with which she was adorned. Her request was if her petition seemed right and reasonable before the king, and if he, pleased, if he was pleased with her, let the edict be reversed. She places the cherry on top of her request by stating that she could not bear to see the destruction of her, of her people, thereby again being willing to be known as a Jewish. These are my people. This is my faith. The king then noted that Queen Esther and Mordecai had the power and resources that had previously belonged to Haman, and therefore they could use that power to their advantage. 
Though Haman's decree could not be revoked because of the law, a second one could supersede it. Let the harm be put away as effectively as it may without reversing the order. The king also gave Mordecai the authority to write the decree any way he wished and to stamp it with the king's authority by using his own signet ring. This decree would authorize the Jews to stand in their defense, to oppose force, to force and destroy the assailant. This would be their effective security as well as saving the order of the Persian constitution. The decree Mordecai wrote was sent out in the third month with Jacibian in June-July of 474. Since this was a little over two months after Haman's decree, the Jews had about nine months to prepare for the conflict. As was the case with the previous decree, the, sense, the, the urgency was sensed. As scripture states, at once, this edict was also dispatched by horsemen throughout the whole empire from India to Kush and was written in the appropriate language for each province. The edict gave the Jews the right to protect themselves, the right to annihilate and plunder any group that fought against them. The Jews could take away the property of their enemies, as Mordecai had taken away the property of Haman. This showed the kindness to the Jews had sufficiently provided for their safety for the latter decree would be looked on as a tacit revocation of the former. It provided for the Jews to avenge themselves on their enemies. The second edict also showed the absurdity of their constitution that none of the king's edicts could be repealed. How absurd is that? For it laid the king under the necessity of enacting a civil war in his own dominion between the Jews and their enemies so that both sides took up arms against his authority. These man-made rules, right? Be aware of them. Next, we discover in Scripture the Cinderella part of our story. Oh, happy day, happy day, finally. In place of his sackcloth, we discover Mordecai now donning royal garments of blue and white, Persian royal colors, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. His robes were rich, and so was his crown. He was looking good. This is a blessed change indeed. All these things were marks of the king's favor and the fruit of God's favor to his people. He now held the position and status Haman once had. In lieu of its citizens being bewildered as they were once over the first edict, they were joy there was a joyous celebration in the city of Susa. While once they were under a dark cloud, dejected and disgraced, now there was much happiness and joy, gladness and honor. The Jewish people were elated over the rise to power, and not only that, many Gentiles became Jewish proselytes over the happenings that had transpired, renouncing their idolatry and worshiping the one true God who is in control of all things and whose plans cannot be thwarted. God's good hand was then becoming obvious to the world at large. Do it again, Lord. Do it again, even in our time. No longer were these events being viewed as chance or happenstance. Now people were beginning to realize that the God of the Jews was protecting and guiding them. This is reminiscent of Moses' words in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 33:29. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, people saved by the Lord. He is your shield and helper and your glorious sword. Your enemies will cover cower before you and you will trample down their high places and in isaiah once more the humble will rejoice in the lord 
the needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Let's close in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that you are in control. We thank you that you do give us the power. We thank you that we are to be courageous and that you give us um, strength to fight our adversaries. Help us to focus on you, Lord, and not the problem, but on you alone. Help us to stand firm in your will, mature and fully assured for your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.